Well, our study is on the book of Galatians this morning, chapter 2, verses, uh, we'll be studying verses 14b all the way to verse 16, 14b, 15, and 16, but I want to read together verses 11 through all the way to verse 16. So if you would stand for the reading of God's word, Galatians chapter 2, we begin again in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Well, as we just announced, uh, next week we'll mark our 12th year anniversary as a church. Um, And uh, uh, we want to consider this morning not just the birth of our church 12 years ago, but the the birth of Protestant churches. We are a Protestant church. Um, We are the product of the Protestant Reformation that occurred a little under 500 years ago in the 16th century. Uh, The church under the leadership of men like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, they discovered the gospel of God's grace in the scriptures, and they broke off from the Roman Catholic Church. Now, with this Reformation, there were two main pillars which birthed this Reformation and sustained it. Two Latin phrases describe these two pillars. Um, I think they're familiar to all of us. Sola Scriptura. Sola fide, the the formal principle, the foundational issue or doctrine was sola scriptura. The Roman Catholic Church believed that for Christians, the Bible was one of many authorities for the conscience of the Christian. Yes, the Bible is an authority, but along with the Bible, the Pope's edicts, his ex-cathedra statements were binding and were... Um, the rule and guide for Christians and Christian churches. The church decisions, their creeds, their traditions, the decisions of the councils were also binding upon Christians. They were the rule and guide for Christian churches as well. Well, Luther and the Reformers, they protested against this, and hence the name Protestants. And, and we protest against this. And our rallying cry is, in Latin, sola scriptura, right? And so Luther, 
in his uh, way that only he can, in a dramatic fashion, articulated this personally in 1521 at this meeting at a city called Worms. Uh, he thought it would be a debate. It was more inquisition. And his last statement before he was threatened to be martyred like Jan Hus, he were to be just uh, burned at the stake because of his heresy, Luther summarized this formal principle of the Reformation, Sola Scriptura. He said, Unless I am convinced by the testimonies from the Scriptures or with evident reasoning from the Scriptures, I believe neither the Pope nor the councils, since they have often erred and contradict one another, I am overcome by the scriptures and my conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. The Catholic leaders wanted Luther to recant his commitment to the scriptures as his sole authority for the church. And Luther said, I will not, I cannot. My conscience is bound to the word of God. That's the formal principle of the Reformation. Now, this foundational basic principle is not the end. As Christians, we believe in Sola Scriptura not as the end, but a means to an end. It is the formal principle, but not the material principle. The Reformers established the singular authority of the Bible not as an end of itself. They did this because they wanted to affirm and defend the message from the Bible, which is the material principle, which is sola fide, faith alone. Does that make sense? The Bible, they affirmed the singular authority of the Bible because of the message contained in the Bible. And only the Bible contains this message that you and I are justified not by works, but by faith alone, by grace alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That is the material principle of the Reformation. And that was the end the Reformers sought. I think we, this, is, this has to be important. As, as Protestant Christians, we believe in the authority of Scripture But that is not the end. It is a means to a greater end, which is the gospel of Christ. Justification by faith alone. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the subject matter. This is the message of verse 16 in Galatians 2. And here we find the very heart of the gospel This is the central doctrine of the Reformation. And Luther said, the Christian church stands or falls based upon this doctrine. And so, Cornerstone Bible Church, we stand or fall based upon this truth. And you and I, your Christian life stands or falls based upon this message John Calvin said, this is the hinge on which everything turns. Everything. Now, he's not exaggerating here. Really. I mean, I can't, I'll say really a million times for the whole sermon, just to impress this point. Everything 
Everything hinges on this heart of the gospel that we are justified by faith alone. Now, uh, I've, I've quoted this, uh, this introduction to by Luther on his own commentary. I've read this in a sermon months or even a year ago. I put it on our website, but because it's so important, I got to do it again. And I have it projected for you so that you guys can read along. Luther said, this is the most important thing in the world. The one doctrine which I have supremely in my heart is that of faith in Christ, from whom, through whom, and unto whom all my theological thinking flows back and forth day and night. This rock which we call the doctrine of justification through faith. When Paul discusses the biblical doctrine of justification by faith, he explains that there are several kinds of righteousness. First, there is political or civil righteousness, the nation's public laws which magistrates and lawyers may defend and teach. Second, there is cultural righteousness, the standard of our family and social grouping or class which parents and schools may teach. Third, there is ethical righteousness, the Ten Commandments and the law of God which the church may teach, but only in light of Christian righteousness. So all these may be received without danger as long as we attribute to them no power to satisfy for sin, to please God, or to deserve grace. These kinds of righteousness are gifts of God, like all good things we enjoy, yet There is another righteousness far above the others, which Paul calls the righteousness of faith. Christian righteousness, God imputed to us apart from our works. In other words, it is passive righteousness as the others are active. For we do nothing for it and we give nothing for it. We only receive it. The need for Christian righteousness (coughs) This passive righteousness is a mystery that the world cannot understand. Indeed, Christians never completely understand it themselves and thus do not take advantage of it when they are troubled and tempted. So we have to constantly teach it, repeat it, and work it on in practice. Anyone who does not understand this righteousness or cherish it in their hearts and conscience will continually be buffeted by fears and depression. Nothing gives peace like this passive righteousness for human beings by nature. When they get near either danger or death itself, will of necessity examine their own worthiness. We defend ourselves before all threats by recounting our good deeds and moral efforts. But then the remembrance of sins and flaws inevitably comes to mind and this tears us apart. And we think, how many errors and sins and wrongs I have done. Please God, let me live so I can fix and amend them. We become obsessed with our active righteousness and are terrified by it and our own imperfections. But the real evil is that we trust our own power to be righteous and will not lift up our eyes to see what Christ has done for us. So the troubled conscience has no cure for its desperation and feeling of unworthiness unless it takes hold of the forgiveness of sins by grace, offered free of charge in Jesus Christ, which is this passive or Christian righteousness. If I try to fulfill the law of myself, I could not trust in what I had accomplished. Neither could it stand up the judgment of God. So... 
I rest upon the righteousness only upon Christ, which I do not produce, but receive. God the Father freely giving it to us through Jesus Christ. Amen, dear Luther. Right, Protestants here and throughout the world in church history cry out, Amen, with this dear brother in Christ. James White in his book, The God Who Justified, said, It is my firm conviction that Protestant means absolutely, positively nothing unless the one wearing that term believes, breathes, lives, and loves the uncompromised, offensive to the natural man message of justification by God's free grace, by faith in Jesus Christ alone. All of this because that is the text that is before us this morning, particularly verse 16. Thomas Schreiner said in verse 16, we arrive at perhaps the most significant text in Galatians in which Paul summarizes uh, the gospel. This text functions as a hermeneutical key for the remainder of the letter. So I'm going to invite you to come close and examine verse 16 together. I was talking to... uh, uh, Kelly this week, and she was telling me how, if you don't know Kelly, she get to know her, a good sister in Christ. She's right there in the four, fifth row, <laughs> right, hiding behind uh, David and Jamie. And she was saying, uh, by God's grace, two years ago, someone hooked her up with uh, seats to the Lakers, and she got six row right behind the Lakers bench. And first, I was bitter. Right? <laughs> Second thing she should have done is call me. Right? I've been friends with her for over 20 years. And I hear about it two years later. She has my number. She could have. And I'd have like skipped church with now. Apart from skipping church, I'd have been there. That's first thought. Second thought was jealousy. Third thought was no. Third thought was she was saying she called out Kobe's name and she was sure he heard him. He heard her, right? Well, so I'm going to ask you to come down from the 300 level seats and come to the first row, courtside seats on verse 16. I want you to, this passage... Like, I want us to intimately know this text. It's not just theology. It's not just doctrine. It'll give you peace. It'll help you from your depression, your anger, your bitterness, your lack of joy, your self-centeredness, your pride, all the anxiety that's flooding your heart. This text is the cure. That is why I invite you to come to the front row and look deep into its truths. Now, this passage answers that question that was raised in the first book of the Bible. The first book of the Bible is the book of Job. And in chapter 25, verse 4, one of Job's friends, Bildad, raised this question. How can a man be righteous before God? How can a man be just, right? Be accepted by God who is thrice holy? When we are born of women, we are impure. And that is the question that is upon every single person in the world. And this text answers that question. Now, one quick background information about this text. Verses 14 through 21 is the content, I believe, and I'm not alone, I think the majority of of Bible students agree, 
is the content of what Paul preached to Peter at this public confrontation in the city of Antioch. Right? So 14 through 21, this is Paul's reiteration of what he told Peter when he caught Peter in his sins, in hypocrisy, sin of racism, sin of dividing the church, sin of standing condemned because he violated, he walked against the truth of the gospel. This is what Peter declared to, Paul declared to Peter, and he has recorded for us that we might hear it for ourselves. And in verse 14, here is the proof of Peter's hypocrisy. Evidence of Peter's hypocrisy. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, we've spent time together. I've seen you live as a Gentile, meaning live in freedom. In terms of your diet, right? in terms of your rituals, in terms of your relationships with non-Jews, that's how you were and are living. And now by this act of separating yourself from Gentile believers, as a leader of the church, what you're doing is you're acting hypocritically. You're wearing a mask. And not only that, you're being racist. And not only that, you are undermining the gospel of Christ because you are saying that Jewish believers, by obeying the law, are superior. They are more accepted by God. They are more godly. They're more righteous than the Gentiles who do not practice Judaism. And by doing that, by adding to the gospel, right? Indirectly, in the backdoor way, right? Not the- theologically, but by implication, by adding to the gospel works, you have denied the gospel even though you yourself live free as as a as like a gentile person <clears throat> it wasn't just about racism it wasn't just about unity of the church the gospel was at stake keep your finger on galatians 2 and go a page or two to galatians 5 galatians 5 2 through 4 Paul says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, so if you accept anything apart from faith in Christ as a means to be accepted by God, as a way to be more acceptable, more righteous, more holy before God, if you do that, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. And the consequences, verse 4, you are severed from Christ. You who will be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Fallen away from grace. Now go back to chapter 2, verse 14b and verse 15. Now Paul... Um, presented this uh, to Peter and pointed out how Paul was being a hypocrite. See, for Peter, he was honoring God. He was abiding by the law of God. He was being holy. He was being righteous. And Paul was saying, no, you're in sin. You're being a hypocrite. Um, 
why did Paul, Paul wasn't doing this to embarrass Peter. Paul wasn't doing this to, um, as a punitive measure, right? To confront him in public and to point out his hypocrisy. Paul was pointing out Peter's sin, specifically his sin and his righteousness. Peter thought it was righteousness. Paul says, no, it's not righteousness. In actuality, it's sin. Because that is the prerequisite to growing and understanding this doctrine of justification by faith as believers. Right? For unbelievers, for them to be saved, they need to understand that they're sinners. Right? When we go witnessing, the first thing we say is, you have, God is holy, you have sinned. As Christians, it's the same. For us as Christians, to grow in our understanding of this truth, this doctrine where everything hinges, is to, for us to grow in our understanding of our sinfulness. Now, particularly, our sinfulness in our righteousness. All right, let me um, quote to you uh, from John Murray. I think I have it here. John Murray said, We are all wrong with him, God, because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Far too frequently, we fail to entertain the gravity of this fact, our own sinfulness. Hence the reality of our sin and reality about, of the wrath of God upon us for our sin do not come into our reckoning, to not, into our minds. This is the reason why the grand article of justification does not ring the bells in the innermost depths of our spirit. This is the reason why the gospel of justification is to such an extent a meaningless sound in the world and in the church in the 21st century, 20th century, we are not imbued with the profound sense of the reality of God, of his majesty and holiness, and sin, if reckoned with at all, is a little more than a misfortune or maladjustment. Conviction of sin is the prerequisite. James Buchanan said the best preparation for this doctrine is neither great intellectual ability nor much scholastic learning, but a conscience impressed with a sense of our actual condition as sinners in the sight of God. A deep conviction of sin is the one thing needful in such an inquiry. A conviction of the fact of sin as an awful reality in our own personal experience of the power of sin, as an inveterate evil cleaving to us continually and having its roots deep in the innermost recesses of our hearts and of the guilt of sin, past as well as present as an offense against God, which once committed can never cease to be true of us individually, and so we deserve his wrath and righteous condemnation. End quote. What keeps us from understanding and growing in this truth is, and not getting it is because... Um, we don't understand the gravity of our sinfulness. And as professing believers, the greatest hindrance to that is, again, our righteousness. Peter thought he's a Jewish believer. He's not going to eat with Gentile believers because he is clean and they are unclean. He is circumcised, therefore he is accepted by God. They are not. He observes the Sabbath. He observes the dietary laws. The circumcision party and Peter, even Barnabas, all thought they were pure or purer than the Gentile believers. And so they lost the gospel. Gospel so slippery. 
Right? They lost their way. There's so many ways to get lost. The only way they could find themselves back is by Paul re- exposing them with the gospel and exposing his hypocrisy. And it's not, you are pure, they're impure. No, we are all impure. We are all sinners. We are all unrighteous. We are all defiled. God alone is holy. That is the way back. That is way back for Peter, and that is way back for us. We need to see sin in our righteousness. We need to ask the gospel to help us have our hearts laid bare and for us to see all the things that we use to judge others, condemn other people, fellow Christians or people in the world. Everything that we use to buffet our hearts, to make us feel superior and to condemn others, we need to see hypocrisy. We need to see how we are standing condemned. Right? By that accusation in our hearts, right? we are denying the gospel which we profess. Until we see that, as Gerstner said, what separates you from God is your damnable righteousness. The reason this message of justification by faith does not ring true in your heart, the reason it does not lay you bare and melt you and cause you to thank God and and repent of your sins and be filled with joy, the reason this is absent in your life is because you are holding on to your righteousness and you don't see how that damns you. As believers, not like eternally, but relationally. It's separating you from God. That is why Paul brings out this indictment against Peter. Personally, you are acting hypocritically. You are being a hypocrite so that Peter might be ready for verse 16. That when Paul preaches verse 16, Peter's not, oh, I know that. Peter, hey, Paul, what are you talking about? Like, that's elementary. You're going to preach the gospel again? Like, I, I learned this in Matthew 3. I was there. I heard it from Jesus. The last thing, I don't need to learn, hear this again. No, because Peter was exposed to his hypocrisy. He was laid bare. He was brought low. So he was ready for the gospel. And so for you, if, you're, if you don't see sin in your righteousness, it's going to be... Oh, here goes James again with the gospel. You know, I'm going to just tune out here because I've, I've, I've heard this. I learned this in VBS. I learned this my whole life. This is what, I've taught this to others. I don't need this. Well, I'm not saying you don't know this in your mind. But I'm saying, is it melting your heart? Is it just, is it a spark? Is it something that's ringing true? in your soul. Um, that's the reason why Paul exposed Peter of his sin because it's the requisite for understanding the gospel and same thing for us. Well, ready or not, I'm going to go to verse 16. Pray that your heart is brought low seeing God's holiness and seeing your sinfulness so much so that it pervades your righteousness. Every righteous deeds are like filthy rags in the sight of God. Therefore, you're longing for verse 16. Verse 16 is um, it's an amazing sentence. Paul 
you know, it's like gospel. It's like five-hour energy drink right here in one verse, right? He says uh, justification three times and not by works of the law three times and faith in Jesus Christ three times. How do you say all those three things three times in one verse? But Paul does that. He repeats himself again and again and again. Look at verse 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He said it once. So we also believe in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. He said it, said it a second time. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He said it a third time. Talk about circular reasoning. He emphasizes these three truths. We'll start with the first one, justification. All right, justification. Now, uh, let's, be, let's begin by looking at what justification is not. Two things that it is not. First of all, it is not just forgiveness, right? Justification is distinct from forgiveness. It does not merely mean that our sins are forgiven. Justification is so much more beautiful than that. It's so much more glorious. Right? Forgiveness of sins is negative, but justification is positive. So you murder someone, you're in jail for life, headed for execution, and the king pardons you. That's forgiveness of sins. But what justification is, you're set free, and you're a former criminal. You have no family and friends. The king, what he does, he adopts you into his family. Right? He adopts you as his child. And now you're the prince of this land. And he adores you, and he stamps you, and he gives you his inheritance. That is justification. God didn't just forgive you of your sins. No, not just negative. He has imputed his righteousness. He has adopted you into his family. You are now a child of God, and you have the Holy Spirit as as a deposit, securing your inheritance. I think I said this here, where God doesn't put 20% down, 5% down, you know, 3% down, you know, buying a house, people will walk away. If God put 20% down and become underwater, God will walk away from us. We're not worth it. We're so sinful. No, God gave 100% deposit. He gave us the Holy Spirit, saying to us, He will never walk away from this deposit. He will never desert us, never forsake us. He will be with us forever. Not only that, justification is not inner moral goodness. It's not making us righteous. It is not making us holy. Right? It is not uh, changing our works, making us good people, making us righteous. No, it is not that at all. It is uh, what, what it is, it's a, it's a legal term. It's a forensic term, a, a legal setting. Uh, Romans 8.33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Satan is the accuser. He's accusing. He's condemning. So he dare lay a charge against God's elect. And God said, forgiven, righteous, justified, accepted, not, not guilty. It is the exact opposite of condemnation. Justification is a legal declaration that somebody is innocent, without sin, is righteous, is accepted by God. 
it is an eschatological, right, a reality. I got to use that in the seminary. I spent some money there, so I got to... I use some long words to show I'm not just a hacks talking, talking up here, telling Laker jokes. Um, the Jews believe in this eschatological reality, the, the day of judgment. God will render judgment to people. He will declare who is righteous and who is unrighteous. Now with the cross, that eschatological reality has been moved up in time to the cross. And he made the determination 2,000 years ago on Calvary, it is finished. And God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that everyone who believes in him will be the righteousness of God. So he moved it forward so that everybody who believes in Jesus, we know for a certainty what the verdict will be. Right? So I, I have a friend right now who's going through a court case, and he's being sued. And I don't know if you guys have been sued. Man, that's a difficult thing to go through, to have somebody like have a lawsuit against you. And so he's waiting for the judge. You wait for the judge. What's he going to say? And you never know these judges, right? these activist judges. All right? You just never know what they're going to say. Um, when we went to court for Ethan, like we had no idea what is he going to say. Is he going to uh, give Ethan to us or not? As believers, without the gospel, we fear. That's what all the religious people, they don't know the verdict that God, the, fought, the judge is going to give. But as Christians, because of the gospel, we know the verdict. We know the conclusion. We know the declaration. It is justified. It is righteous. It is that you are forgiven and you are a child of God. Um, a classical Protestant uh, understanding of justification is set forth in question 60 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And the question is, how are you righteous before God? All right. How are you righteous before God? And this beautiful answer is given. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. In spite of the fact that my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have not kept any of them and that I am still prone to all that is evil, nevertheless, God, without any merit of my own, out of pure grace, grants me the benefits of the perfect expiation of Christ, imputing to me His righteousness and holiness as if I had never committed a single sin or had ever been sinful, having fulfilled myself all the obedience which Christ has carried out for me, if only I accept such favor with a trusting heart. Right. So by trusting in Christ, not only are my, all my sins forgiven, and it's as if I've never committed these sins in my, in my life for the sight of God, not only that, I've been credited with, imputed with Christ's righteousness, so that right now, while I'm a sinner, God says of me, that eschatological reality has been made a reality right now, this moment, where God says, you're my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. I see no stain upon you. I see no guilt, no reason for guilt and shame or condemnation in our relationship because when I see you, I see nothing but the righteousness of my perfect son, Jesus Christ. So that's what Paul repeated three times, this justification. It is not by works of the law. Three times, a person is not justified by works of the law. 
Not by works of the law. By works of the law, no one will be justified. Memorize verse 16. Will we understand that we cannot be accepted by God through works? Through what we do? We cannot please God more through anything that we do on our, in our lives. It is an impossibility. Paul rejects it three times in a single verse. Paul used this phrase, ergonomu, right? Work, law, namas, right? Uh, works the law eight times in his letters. Three times in Romans and five times in this epistle, Galatians. And in every instance, the contrast is works of the law contrasted with faith. That there are only two ways to God, either by works and or by faith. And if you dare approach God with a posture of seeking to be accepted by, by Him and entering His kingdom by works, you are not justified. You are condemned. You will hear the words, away from me. You workers of iniquity. You're cast out into the everlasting fires because you have rejected my holiness and my grace, my offer of salvation. Only those who uh, cling to his son, cling to the provision made by him, by faith alone, will we be accepted by God. I mean, I've got more here on Romans 3, but we need to go uh, to the last time he mentions, not by works, verse 16, by works of the law, no one will be justified. If any of you have a Greek text, you get extra credit. If you, and you have a Greek text, you're looking at it right now, and you'll know that that last clause is in quotation marks because Paul here is quoting Psalm 143.2. That's what David said in the Old Testament. He is quoting what David said, where no one living is righteous before you. And Paul quotes, no one, right? No, no one will be justified. He's quoting the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Why did Paul quote the Old Testament here? Because he's saying, it's not my invention. I'm not, I'm not the one saying you can't, you can't be justified by the, by the law. It's, it's always been this way. Right? This is the consistent message of the Bible. From the old and the new. Right? All the way from Genesis 15:6, where Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. From the beginning all the way to now, the singular message of the Bible has been you cannot be justified through works of the law, obedience to uh, the commands of God, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, three times here. Person is justified through faith in Christ. So also we have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ. We are accepted. We are We are accepted. We have a relationship with God through faith and not by works. And um, it's crucial that we understand this faith as a gift, not a work. If we 
view our faith as a work, then we're adding to the gospel again. It is about what we have done. And then we pride ourselves as having faith and we condemn others for their lack of faith, for their weak faith. No, this faith, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, is a gift from God. It is a gift that is a passive righteousness. It's not active. It's not what we have done. We don't amp ourselves. We don't have faith. We don't grow our faith. We don't produce faith. It is not our work. It is God's gift. A man can receive only what is given from, from above. It is what we receive from God. It's a gift. Therefore, no one can boast. All boasting is excluded. This faith that we have in Christ, which justifies us, is all all by grace. And all glory goes to Christ. Well, I'm going to um, close our time. Somewhat of a, maybe a mislabel because we still got ways to go. <laughs> right? So when someone says, you know, pastor says it's closing time. Oh, great. Time to land this plane. Well, no, we're still got, you know, a few more minutes up here. Uh, but it is closing. I'm going to spend more time next week on verse 16 and the following verses. But I want to close here by applying this to us. Find this to us um, maybe three ways. Individually and to the church in two ways. Um, I want to go back to that issue of uh, how I desire you to grow in this truth. It is my heart's prayer and my heart's desire that this truth of justification by faith alone will become your treasure, your delight, your anchor. It would be not just intellectually reasonable to you, but it would be existentially, subjectively beautiful to you in your heart. And it would be everything to you. I mean, it would, that's my prayer. It would be everything for you as a Christian. Because this is where all the sweet fruits grow. Right? Now, how do, how do we get there? How can we get there? It's by um, seeing our sinfulness. Seeing how sinful we are. How holy God is and how sinful we are. But at the same time, it's really com- complicated because most of us, our fault is we're very um, moral people, right? You've been good students, good workers, good members of community, good members of your family. And if anything, it's hard to see your sinfulness. So the way to get closer is by seeing sin in your righteousness. Right? How, can, uh, how can I help you this morning to see sin in your righteousness? Uh, I want you to look at not what you, not look at, don't look at your sins, but consider for a minute what you boast in. What are you proud of? Right? What, what makes you feel good about yourself? What is your identity, your ego based on? Right? Look at yourself and before God, what do you uh, base your um, righteousness upon? 
I got this email um, from a friend of mine, not from our church, so don't start guessing. And uh, the person wrote, we came out of a church culture that was very committed to using the rod for disciplining kids. So our view was the earlier you discipline, the harder you discipline, the more frequent you discipline, you're godlier, you are better. That was a dominating thought. And we were on the more intense end of the scale among our peers. And I know them personally, and they, they, they were, right? Looking back, I can see how our mindset was filled with self-righteous zeal and pride. And I can see how we went beyond the biblical call to withhold not correction and took pride in our extremism. They took pride in it. So they were disciplining their kids, and they took pride in how well, how frequent, how hard they disciplined their kids. It's a good thing. But they took pride in it, and they judged other parents. They looked down on them. They felt superior, and they demeaned other parents who weren't as faithful in disciplining their children. They took they are boasting in this in their hearts. They saw themselves as godlier than others because they discipline so comprehensively. Well, God gave them grace. We found that this approach was clearly not consistent with what we know about the grace and mercy of our Lord, how it's this kindness that causes us to repent and our inability to reform our own ways without the Spirit's work in our hearts we began to deeply sense the need to have our mindset on parenting be consistent with our understanding of salvation, which is the gospel. We've been learning and growing in compassion. It's really been sweet. And we praise God for helping us to see it. So disciplining kids is a good thing. They prided themselves that they were better at discipline than others. And this boast... kept them from grace, kept them from the gospel. Now they're discovering the gospel where their boast is not their style of parenting, but it's Christ alone. So it's not just for parents. that's uh, That's the material principle. The formal principle is much broader. It could be applied to anything. What is your boast in your life? Secondly, uh, Look at um, your relationships with fellow believers. Right. So Peter was divided over these over uh, Gentile believers. Look at your relationships with fellow Christians and what is uh, causing you to be bitter at them, angry at them, causing you to be divided from them. Look at your spouse, your husband or wife. Why are you angry? Why are you upset? What's the reason for your unhappiness, your critical spirit, your division. Can you uh, trace those relational issues that you have with fellow believers and trace that anger, that unhappiness back all the way to your pride? Your pride because you think you're better than them. You have that spirit towards your brother or sister because you would never do that. You would never think that way, right? Or you would do something that they 
haven't done. You would, you're willing to do it, but they're not willing to do it. You feel superior in your heart, and you're judging them, and it's based on pride. Right? You see it as a righteous thing. Right? You obey God a certain way, and they are not, and you're, mag- you're magnifying your strength, your, your weakness, you're minimizing your weaknesses, and you're magnifying their weaknesses, right? their sins. And that way, your pride is coming forth. Do you see how pride is at the core of that? Yourself, your self-centeredness at the core of that. Do you see how your sin is not just external, but it's at your heart level? That before God, he sees your heart. And there's nothing you can do with your pride. There's no escape. Only the gospel of God's grace wilts this pride in you. We'll go to, uh, we'll step back, and I want to look at our church. And so from your own, own self, I want to uh, help you um, look at our church in a macro level and how we ought to be, in light of the fact that we are people who believe in this doctrine that we're justified by faith, not by works, what kinds of fruit should it produce in our lives, in our church, in our culture? I think first of all, we pray that this will be our own, our only boast as a church. That the singular boast of our church will be this doctrine. That if someone were to ask you, you know, what is so special about Cornerstone Bible Church? I, I pray you would not think, believe, or feel, or say, Oh, what's special about Cornerstone is uh, the elders, right? They're so wise, they're so godly, they're men of prayer. It would not be, oh, my pastor, right? Pastor James or Dan, or they, they preach so well, they preach so faithfully, expositionally. Oh, we're so intense about missions, and we're sacrificial, and we are seeking to be a merciful community. No, I, I, I pray that we would see that this is a central doctrine upon which we stand or fall. And that as Paul said in Galatians 6.14, far be it from me that I would boast in anything apart from the cross of Christ, that our only boast would be justification by grace through faith alone. If we boast in anything else, it's going to disappoint you, right? Whatever we boast on apart from the cross, it's going to fail us and fail you. If you think, if you boast in me, I'm going to disappoint you. If you boast in our church community, our church is a certain way, when we change, you're going to be upset. If you boast in the fact that we're in Garden Grove, if we move, you'll be angry, right? Anything you boast of apart from the cross will fail you. Our boast has to be what Jesus has done for us. And then the final one, it's a long quote, but I think it's, it's worth it. Um, uh, it's from William Horton's book, Living by Grace. As people who believe in this doctrine, it is our prayer 
that we would become this kind of community, that we would have this kind of culture. And I, he says that so, so much better than I can, and I'll read this quote while I'm in prayer. He said in his book, a direct implication of justification to the church is that the church should provide an environment where fear of being oneself is removed. All too often, people are afraid to be themselves in church circles. Instead, they find that they are put under great pressure to wear a false mask, to pretend to have a righteousness that they do not have. In some church circles, at least, it may win a badge of approval to confess to past sins. Christians can take considerable pleasure in hearing of the depths from which a person has been delivered but Christians are not nearly so likely to be open to confession of sins of weaknesses that, that plague a church member in the present. A number of church members who have joined Alcoholics Anonymous or weight control groups have reported on the radical difference in the atmosphere that they have found in these groups from the atmosphere found in average congregations. In such groups organized around the confessed need of the participants, they can be completely honest. People can can tell where they are. They can bear their problems, their failures, their doubts, and their fears. They can do it because they have a confidence that they are in sympathetic company. They are not going to be cast out for their failures. They are not going to be scorned or laughed at. They can experience the therapeutic effects of telling all without losing their acceptance. Since there is mutual sharing, there can be mutual help. This is precisely the attitude one would expect in a church that really believed in justification. One Protestant churches, once our Protestant churches all unite in one way or another every Sunday in confessing, we are sinful and unclean, we have come short of thy glory in this way. The church acknowledges that it is a community of those who confess they are sinners, but seldom does the atmosphere of the church encourage or even allow its members to spell out the confession in meaningful detail. Having ritually confessed to our sins, we must henceforth put on the false front of righteous piety. The basis for honesty in one of the groups mentioned above is easy to see. People become members of such a group only when they have recognized that they have a problem that they cannot handle by themselves. They reach out for help and find that they are joined to others in the same condition. The result is a fellowship of mutual help in which honesty comes naturally. Having joined this group, one has confessed the worst. Later confessions can only spell out the details. Furthermore, the confession is made to those who have also confessed to the same problem. So no one is in a position to cast the first stone. The members may admonish and exhort each other, even as they cheer each other's victories, but never do they rule a stumbling member out beyond the pale. So long as a person is still seeking help, he is welcomed with love and sympathy. Should we not expect the same attitudes in a church that believes in justification by grace alone through faith alone? To become a member of the church is to confess not only that we are sinners, but that we cannot handle our problems by ourselves. 
we are reaching out for help from beyond ourselves, looking to God's grace, we are joining the church to others in the same condition. That is why Christ Church is such a gift to us. He has given us a community where we not only hear of justification by faith, but we see it practiced toward us, where we experience acceptance and love, not by what we have done or not done, but because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Let's pray. Well, God, we, uh, we, have, we have such a long way to go. Um, we are a people, we confess with calloused hearts that we, we do not see sin in our righteousness and even we do not even see sin in our own sins, our evil, our wickedness. We justify ourselves. We defend our sins. We somehow... Um, excuse it and defend it before you and others how far we are uh, from the gospel of grace but God with the gospel there is always hope there is always hope in you because it is not dependent upon us our wisdom our godliness our will or effort it is dependent upon your love and mercy so God, if we freely confess our sins and we come to you and we pray that you would open our eyes to see your holiness and how we have fallen short, how we have missed the mark, how we have violated your laws both ways through our sins and through our righteousness. And it is only by Christ, through Christ, faith in him, that we are justified. And that through that, oh God, you will produce in us this um, unique humility and unique love for one another where the whole aroma of our church will be one that exudes this message of the gospel, message of Jesus uh, to near and to far. We thank you, O God, for preserving this truth uh, for us. May we preserve it continually in our lives and for future generations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.